You're listening to Trek FM. Hi, I'm Denise Crosby, and you're listening to Women at Warp. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Grace, and thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Jera. Hi, I'm Andy. Hi, I'm Sue. And starting it out with some of our housekeeping, we are almost at a thousand likes on Facebook, aren't we, you guys? So while we're talking about people showing us some love, let's bring up our Patreon for a second. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash women at warp. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And you can go and pledge uh, a really small monthly amount um, to help us with our work. And in exchange, you get access to bonus content. Give us money. You will be an insider. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And it helps us do things like promote the show at those conventions and upgrade equipment yeah absolutely um we love putting in our time for free talking about star trek um, but it helps to offset some of our costs and just make sure that we can reach a broader audience Speaking of our audience, we've got some fan mail, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, We actually have an audio transmission from listener Renee, a.k.a. Morass. So we will play that for you. It's on our episode about the book Uhura's Song. Hey, gals. You might remember me from my emails to All Things Trek. I still miss that podcast very much, but it's wonderful to hear you again on this new show. I've been listening to Women at Warp since you started and loving every minute. Been meaning to get in touch for ages, but you know how it is when life gets in the way. I wanted to comment briefly on your book club review of Uhura's song. A couple of years ago, I edited a story for the Trekmate features called Return to Saval. Not having heard of the Savalans before, I asked the author for more information, and she told me about the book. I read the whole thing over a weekend, and have reread it several times since. I agree with most everything you said. It's a wonderful novel with amazing world building and characterizations. I do wonder why Kagan replaced Nares with Snanach Fashtali, though. I'd have loved to see Akashian interact with the Savawans and Iyawans, to see their similarities and differences. It's too bad Snanach Fashtali gets so little to do, even though I very much appreciate how she gets the ball rolling with the whole issue of names and personal identities. Knowing German helped me with the guttural pronunciation they mentioned, but even so, the name took me some practice. I see your point about Evan Wilson becoming a Mary Sue of sorts. Nonetheless, her character intrigued me from the very first, and I wanted to find out more about her. I wish Kagan had been able to write those further novels you mentioned. I couldn't really imagine her being a Q, though. The Q aren't known for refraining from using their powers for very long. In short, I love this book and would recommend it to any Trek fan. If you're looking for more books with strong women characters, I'd suggest Diane Duane's collection The Bloodwing Voyages and Peter David's New Frontier series. If you're looking for standalones, you might enjoy Greg Kotz's Assignment Eternity, which is a sequel to Assignment Earth. Then you should also read The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan, Nuni, and Singh, Volumes 1 and 2, since they continue the adventures of Gary, Roberta, and Isis. And last but not least, Kotz's Terrain in Hell bridges Space Seed and the Wrath of Khan, and also redeems the character of Marla MacGyver's quite well. That's enough for now, though. Keep up the good work, and I'm looking forward to the next show. Cheers, Renee, a.k.a. Morris. 
So thanks so much for that, Renee. It's really cool that you mentioned Diane Duane because we actually have a super exciting announcement. So maybe I'll let Andy talk about that if you want. So um, one of the series that kept coming up uh, for suggestions for us to read for book club was the Riansu series by Diane Duane. And we really couldn't narrow it down to just one book by Diane Duane. So our book club this time around is going to be all of the books by Diane Duane. And on a whim, we reached out to her and she's going to be on our podcast. And we're very, very excited. So yay! <laughs> you can read all or one of uh, your Diane Duane books and then uh, head over to the, our Goodreads page, Goodreads Women at Warp, and you can join in discussions there and also give us any questions you would like us to ask Diane Duane. So excited. It's gonna be great. And as a side note, I've I'm almost through all of our books, and they are really really cool. And you should definitely check them out. Now, this next topic that we are actually starting on today was a suggestion from one of our Patreon donors, Vance. Is that right, guys? Yep, yep, Vance. And we're glad to take this suggestion because it's a top. It's a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts. I am sure. I am speaking, of course, Star Trek about Star Trek original series writer. Miss DC Fontana. Applause, applause, everyone, applause. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, she, DC Fontana was one of the original writers for Star Trek the original series, as well as contributing scripts for Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek the Animated Series. And so she wrote an episode of the fan production Star Trek New Voyages, as well as several stories of the video games. I- I'm super excited to talk about her because I think. I think that when you look at the the history of Star Trek, there aren't a ton of women behind the scenes. And if, you know, probably if you had to pick the most influential, it would be a toss up between DC Fontana and Jerry Taylor. And certainly DC Fontana um, had a lot of influence early on, which laid the foundation for people like Jerry Taylor to do what they did later. So it's, it's pretty cool to look at how she got you know, a foothold in Hollywood at a time when there really weren't a lot of women writers and then got to have this incredible influence on Star Trek. Most definitely. She's responsible for a lot of the world building early on. And it's really cool to see how much she just as a singular writer influenced things with Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. The only person I would add to your list, Jara, would be Mary Howard. But you are, you are absolutely correct is that she was really the first one and, and led the way and talked about for years how with Star Trek, with Gene Roddenberry in particular, what he was looking for was a good story. And that's what they they all worked for and prided themselves on. Uh, Researching for this episode, I got to to read about her and I was really impressed with how tenacious she was and how she really worked hard to, you know, achieve her dream of writing. From the sound of it, you would need to be tenacious back in the 60s to get uh, to be a woman writer on TV. Especially woman sci-fi writer, I would think. Oh my gosh, yeah. So you already know this woman's got serious cojones, even if you're not familiar with her work, just from that. You know, I watched an interview with her, a uh, Writers Guild interview called uh, The Writer Speaks DC Fontana um, from 2012. And she talks about how she was raised to be very practical, um, which I think was common at the time that her mom um, said, you know, you have to have a backup plan. So she took business and secretarial courses and typing and things in high school and college. 
Um, but she always, she said she always knew that she wanted to be a writer of one kind or another. Um, she said that I started reading at a very early age and from reading, I thought I can write this too. And she like started writing adventure and horror stories about her and her friends. So it was actually starting in the typing pool that she ended up in the film industry. She didn't like right away start writing scripts. Right. The general mythos is that she started out as Roddenberry's um, assistant, wasn't it? Well, she did after she had um, been a junior secretary for president of uh, Screen Gems. Then she moved to California and she was only 20 and she wound up in the typing pool for a studio and she loved watching Westerns and she got a job as the producer's secretary uh, for Samuel Peoples. Um, on the Western show Overland Trail. So she was typing up scripts and cast lists and shooting schedules. And she pitched a story and it got accepted. Um, and she was 21. So that's pretty cool. Like, I mean, <laughs> are we all feeling inadequate yet because of that? <laughs> like without even the, the gender barriers uh, that there were at the time, like I was not that functional at 21. Good. Me neither. Good Lord. No. Yeah. So because she had had that experience, um, and Samuel Peoples, of course, later wrote some episodes for Star Trek, um, she, it helped her get connected with Roddenberry, and she was his producer secretary on The Lieutenant, and was able to get that in there, which ended up then launching her onto Star Trek. Launching at the speed of light, you might say. No, not really. <laughs> and that, um, around when do you think she started using DC Fontana as her... Uh, nom de plume rather than Dorothy. Um, well, she's, yeah, she said that it was um, around uh, the first couple scripts she wrote for Overland Trail were under Dorothy Fontana. And, uh, but then she said she'd been sending out spec scripts and her agent came back and said, they don't think a woman can write this show. And that's sort of what Andy was saying that she was writing Westerns and ventures and sci-fi. And she said that like really at the time, they only really thought women could write soap operas and comedies. So um, she changed her, like, the name that she submitted scripts under to DC Fontana, and she said, I just let them think what they would. So in addition to being this great leader for Star Trek, she's also this great example of a female writer in a tumultuous time saying, hell, I can't do this, man. Screw you, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she just kind of used people's assumptions against them, because... The assumption is if um, they're reading a script and it doesn't necessarily say uh, a woman's name, that they're just going to assume it was a man. And so that's kind of how she started getting a toehold. Yeah, and she would say in that interview, which is available in its entirety on YouTube, by the way, that every now and then she'd then go in for meetings and the the producer, whoever bought the story, might be surprised that a woman came in, but you know, after an initial bit of surprise, it would be, well, it's a good story. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> I get that all the time because I use Andy professionally as well. So I get emails addressed to a man all the time or uh, people will call and ask for me and they'll be surprised. They'll, no, no, Andy's a woman. Actually, me too. People think Jarrah's a, a man's name. <laughs> man, how far we haven't come. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it just shows like people are making assumptions. I mean, there's lots of research that demonstrates that even today, if you apply for a job and people think you are a certain gender or race, that's going to affect your likelihood of getting hired. So it's really remarkable that that Fontana was able to even like get that start. And I think speaks to the strength of her writing 
and her ability to, you know, willingness to put herself forward and say, I have good ideas. I'm, I'm confident that I can write scripts just like anyone else. And it also speaks to Gene Roddenberry's, like, openness to that. He just, he wanted good writing and she was writing good stories. And so the fact that she was a woman didn't throw him and he gave her a chance, which I think that, I think it's safe to say that uh, a lot of producers at the time probably would not have given her that chance. I guess it takes a risky business to take risks. So anyway, moving on to one of those stories, the first script that she writes for the original series is Charlie X. And wow, that is definitely an interesting episode to look at in the perspe- when you have the perspective of it being written by a, whim- a woman, am I right? Yeah, and interestingly, like it airs very, very soon in the air order, but it a- was actually produced later. Um, and one thing that she established pretty quickly is that she was really good at making deadlines and turning in scripts um, with time to spare, which especially in the first season when they were getting going, they were having a lot of problems with overrunning the shooting schedule and, you know, having uh, special effects come back late. So they were actually losing a fair amount of money when they were shooting because they would go overtime. And she established right from the beginning that she was able to do this quickly. And I think that really helped her, um, especially in the beginning there, because she was showing that, you know, she could save them money and turn in good scripts. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the episode, the basic premise of it is that a teenage boy comes on board the Enterprise who has never seen a woman before, which is unfortunate because the Enterprise is full of women who will not take his crap. Most importantly, Yeoman Rand. And wouldn't you know it, he decides to give her crap because she's pretty. A tale as old as time. And then McCoy's like, Kirk, this guy needs a, a male role model. And he's Kirk's like, all right, let's get our shirts off and go wrestling. Charlie, did you ever watch <laughs> Gladiator movies? Apparently, this is like Shatner didn't want to be shirtless, which is surprising to me because I feel like Shatner always wanted to be shirtless. You're kidding. He like, <laughs> it's no, just, he like fought it. It's, it's become <laughs> such like a character trait. <laughs> Oh, I know, but apparently, like, he felt like he had gained some weight, and he didn't feel, like, confident taking his shirt off, and so there was, like, this big producers meeting about shirtless or no shirtless, and they were like, well, it's William Shatner, let's keep him shirtless, and so he had wow. to do the wrestling scene. And he's shaved, isn't he? Shirt. he he's, he's completely hairless, it looks like. Dude, Kirk looks good shirtless, I think, so I... I'm just saying, what meeting was it that they discussed body hair at? I'm also saying, like, I actually, I, there's a lot that I appreciate this episode, so this is not at anything to do with DC Fontana, but I'm not sure that, like, grappling with Captain Kirk in, like, no shirts and spandex pants is a way for you to, like... This is how dudes figure out their problems. Wrestling. Let's, like, get half naked and punch each other. That's the general impression I got also, yeah. This is the only way we can, you know, have this conversation with our masculinity intact. One of the cool things, though, is that she actually inserted some of uh, some of the character traits that we start to associate with our characters, for, especially for Uhura. She's the one that wrote the scene where Uhura sings. Oh, cool. Um, so that's one of the more mm, iconic moments, I'd say, for Uhura in the original series, because they don't really give her a whole lot to do. But I always really liked that scene, and and she's just really beautiful and really talented, and that was the first time she really got to show off um, some of her talent. Plus, it's kind of our first big musical number of Star Trek, isn't it? Because there are so many more? There are a (laughs) few, and weirdly enough, there's a couple that are 
Ah, there are a few that you can find just in DC Fontana's Yeah, work. and I think that that, um, I mean, the scene with Uhura singing in Charlie X, that's also when she's sort of singing the song that's kind of an allegory for Spock, and she's kind of teasing him, and um, I think that's also something that runs through uh, Fontana's scripts, because she was always, right off the bat, she says when she saw the, uh, the Bible that Gene Rodbury was working on, she was fascinated by Spock, and her first question was like, who's going to be hired to play Spock? And uh, she, I think, did a lot to explore, uh, I mean, even to, like, make Spock sort of this, like, love interest figure for audience members, both male and female, maybe unintentionally or unintentionally. Either way, most excellent. Well, I guess she chose Charlie X because she felt like she could write teenage boys because she had two brothers. And so she felt like she could write this whole idea of a young man trying to find out who he is. Um, and apparently it was Gene Roddenberry that kind of added some of the sexual tension. Um, she did She did do the, is that a girl line? That was, was hers. But um, Gene Roddenberry definitely added to the aspect of young masculinity and like their horniness, basically. Also their ickiness. Yeah, um, Fontana's father left their family when she was 10, and she spent most of her childhood raising her younger brothers. So that makes sense that she would have experience with you know, young men, masculinity, and desire, and their you know, issues around women. It is really interesting, though, that this is an episode that we got to see um, written by a woman, since there's like this huge vein of interest in it about, you know, kind of toxic young boy adolescent entitlement that you got to wonder if a male writer had been doing it would he have been able to really talk about how scary that can be as a woman when you're getting that coming at you yeah definitely because there's that whole thing like when he is denied he becomes violent and i think i think that's something that um maybe men don't understand so much when it comes to women and how they react to being hit on It can be really scary and it can be really frightening, especially if you are not interested and you have to reject them in any way. I remember being young and my mom having to explain like the best ways to reject a guy so he wouldn't get angry. And um, that's sad to me that we have to like think about that. Very sad. Well, I mean, it comes up in street harassment because I I mean, I see all these people being like, why wouldn't you why don't you stand up for yourself? And I'm like, have you ever done that? I mean, even if you don't stand up for yourself, um, sometimes these guys that are yelling at you on the street can become really, really creepy and gross, even if you're not overtly rejecting them. The first time I was ever street harassed, I was 12. It was a car full of guys. And when I wouldn't respond to them and I wouldn't look at them because I was terrified, they threw a can of grape soda at my head. So I got to walk home covered in grape soda. So that was a really fun entrance into the world of sexual harassment. Yeah. Oh, joy. There's also this level of it, um, watching Rand get sexually harassed by a teenage boy and having the people be around her be like, well, is it, is it really that bad? And having her say... I want you to deal with this before it gets that bad that I think is really cool that we get to sort of see her establish this camaraderie with Kirk where she's like, hey, this isn't okay. I need you to help me take care of this. And him be like, you sure? Okay, we'll take care of this. Yeah, it's sort of that boys will be boys attitude that is so problematic. Ugh, yeah. But Kirk does have a pretty nice line when he is talking to Charlie and 
I was actually, I remember when I was first watching it, kind of surprised by it and pleasantly surprised. Um, he basically says, be gentle. It's not a one-way street, you know, how you feel and that's all. It's how the girl feels too. And I thought that was nice to have in there, have an older male role model figure tell this kid, like, look, it's not just about what you feel. It's about what she feels too. Which kind of makes you feel a little better about um, Rand and all of these, you know, women crew members being in Kirk, kind of in the hands of Kirk as a boss, at least a little bit. Is there anything else we want to say about Charlie X? And always, it always gets to me a little bit because I'm like, oh, this is just what is happening in this fictionalized account of this woman having to deal with a dude in her workplace harassing you. And then it got me just thinking about how many times does a woman, a woman in the military or in government have to put up with this and just kind of shake it off as part of her job? This this episode kind of always depresses me by that. Yeah, in that respect, it is definitely still relevant. You know, we're we're still dealing with it. I get street harassed every day that I go outside of my apartment. Like it's it hasn't gotten better, and it may have gotten worse. Well, I think that this it's cool that you know this these themes are still relevant today. Um, I don't know how much of the audience got that part of it um but it was definitely a big success and people liked this script and gene roddenberry liked this script uh a lot and it got gave her a chance to do more work on star trek which is awesome and then she got to do tomorrow is yesterday which is such a great episode tomorrow is yesterday yeah this is such a fun episode um and okay so tomorrow is yesterday is the one where they use the slingshot effect and go back in time to the 60s and uh, accidentally pick up like this Air Force pilot and then realize that his son is going to be super important. So they have to get him back to Earth without anybody finding out that they took him, basically, and finding out that the Enterprise exists because they might change the future. Um, and I think it's a really cool episode. It's really fun also as one of the earlier establishing, well, earlier establishing episodes. And it's like, we're in space, we're going on adventures, also BT-dubs, we can time travel. Yeah, that's going to be happening. This is also the episode that has one of the um, most well-known, I guess, of the feminist Captain Kirk memes <laughs> with a woman, a woman, a crewman. A crewman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great because uh, this woman is, and they even give her the sexy music while she's walking down the, the corridor and... This pilot is just like, wow, 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 was a Kirk's like, she's a crewman. It's pretty cool. DC Fontana Kirk is just after my own heart, isn't he? And if you're not familiar with feminist Captain Kirk, you should do a Google image search. I'm just saying. <laughs> and the slingshot effect, too, is um, is heavily used again. They use it again for Assignment Earth. And then more, most famously, that's what they use in A Voyage Home. Um, there's also, we talked a little bit about this, I think, in the Kirk Love Interest episode about how, um, you know, Spock actually ends up being the one who's kind of more sexist versus Kirk in the original series, um, even though Kirk has this reputation as being, quote unquote, a womanizer. And uh, there's another example of that in Return to Tomorrow where Spock is talking about the reason that the computer is sexy and flirting, <laughs> which the flirting computer is hilarious. I am totally into it. Um, yes, dear. But uh, Spock says, like, the uh, the computer was repaired on this planet dominated by women. Uh, they seem to feel the ship's computer system lacked a personality. They gave it one. Female, of course. 
Uh, Spock. Oh, dear. Yeah, apparently the flirty Q-meter was super popular. Like, people really responded to it. And I think it makes sense because it's super funny to see Kirk reacting to the computer hitting on him. Not even machines are immune from the old Kirk charm. This is also the time when D.C. Fontana was writing when she um, decided that she wasn't going to play the dual role of secretary slash writer anymore. So she was like, "Okay, um, at this point, I think I've had enough success that I'm just going to take the leap and become a full time TV writer and give up being the secretary. Which is kind of cool because we get to see this episode as kind of a victory for her then, don't we? I think so, definitely. Um, She basically said, Jean, I love working for you, but I really want to write. You know, I've been working for this all my life. I have to give it my best shot. And she said that Gene could appreciate that ambition because at one point he had to face a very similar decision in regard to leaving the police force. So he survived, but he did hate losing a good secretary. Yeah, and so then as you know, a writer and uh, she became story editor in October 1966, she had to work with the writers, um, which you can imagine it's pretty cool that, you know, she had to work with all of these writers, um, sending in scripts. She had to go, she was responsible for reading the slush pile and selecting which spec scripts were worth following up and which ones were, uh, you know, responding to ones that weren't worth following up on. Um, she also wrote her own scripts and she, she visited the set two to three times a week to just sort of get a sense of how things were going and the characters. And, uh, this was like, she was 27 years old. So pretty darn cool oh yeah she also became their script doctor basically yeah and it's worth remembering slash noting that there was no writer's room in these days right like we think of it now or or that were presented within sitcoms about making tv most if not all um writers for tv shows were essentially freelancers so they had people that they worked with several times but they were always sending in story ideas or spec scripts for the most part. So when she had a slush pile to go through, she really had to slush through it, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, she had to work with all of these these writers because, you know, Gene Roddenberry was bringing in all of these sci-fi writers and not all of them had written for TV. So she was working for the with these big personalities like Theodore Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison and uh, Robert Bloch and, you know, like the people that um, were being brought in. Like these were big names and like she had to deal with them on like more or less an equal footing to say like this is what's going to work this is what's not going to work yeah there's a pretty good reason that when i started telling people about why i was excited to be on an episode about dc fontana the general response i got was oh man she was like the peggy olsen of star trek wasn't she you're probably not wrong yeah and her um her kind of like script doctor role I think is really interesting because basically what they started doing is anytime they had a story they liked but like wasn't working for some reason they would um, give it to DC Fontana and see if she could fix it so her next episode that is credited to her is this side of paradise where she shared a writing credit with Nathan Butler but basically she took his idea and completely changed it does somebody want to give us an overview? Has somebody seen this one lately? Yeah, sure. So uh, this side of paradise is the one with the planet with the people in green overalls who are like in a utopian commune and they are living forever as a result of this weird uh, radiation and spores that control your mind and just make you feel like everything is awesome. So um, they go down there. 
uh, and uh, Spock meets an old girlfriend, but he's never really been able to love her because of his Vulcan restraint. And then he gets spored upon. Definitely spored <laughs> is the verb we're going with here. I have an infamous screenshot for that. Yes, the other verbs were not appropriate. So he got he got spored on. And uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, we've, uh, we had a listener write in, um, point out the consent issues in this. It's not great. Um, it's like, it's very much considered like a romantic light love story. Um, but if you actually consider the fact that that he is Spock is really like under the influence of these plants and would not be doing any of this stuff of his own free will. It's, it's problematic, but I don't think that was the intent at all at the time. At least she's not really administering this to him. She's kind of, she's under the influence too. his girlfriend. Yeah. They're all under the influence. Um, she's just kind of taking advantage of it though. But that was DC Fontana's real big contribution to this story. Wasn't it? It was that Spock, yeah. quote, love story. Yeah, yeah. she basically, um, the original script had Sulu doing the love story, and she thought it was much more interesting to think about what would happen if Spock lost control, which I think she was right about, because this episode, forgetting all of the consent issues, which is hard to do, but if you think about it, it really does deepen Spock's character, and it ends up being a little bit sad, but you kind of get to peel back the layers of Spock, and I think that is one of her biggest contributions to the series as a whole, is her contributions to how Spock was written, Um, and this Mm. is one of those. This is also the episode where she establishes that um, Spock's mother was human, his father was Vulcan. Um, Well, no, sorry, I misspoke. She gave them um, jobs. So this is the first time we find out that his father is an ambassador and his mother is a teacher. In general, she seems really character-driven and character-focused in her stories. Like, we always get interesting tidbits about somebody's interests or their background or something in a DC Fontana story. Which is really great, especially in a kind of ensemble show like this. Yeah, I I think she does a lot to, like, deepen the characterization, um, because for a lot of the characters, I mean, basically they just, you know, say the lines that have to be said, and they don't really get a whole lot out of it. Um, And she does have a handful of times where she she gives them a, a couple more moments, and she seemed very devoted to the Bible, so she definitely had a, a strong sense of who these characters were. And a lot of a lot of the conflict she had with other writers was if they weren't living up to what she thought the characters were supposed to be. Which, generally speaking, there are a lot worse things to have writers conflict over, I, all things considered. Yeah, and, like, so this, after this episode, she became story editor. And then this was near the end of season two, or sorry, season one. And between season one and season two, she went and she took the Bible around to all of the actors and basically talked to them about their character descriptions and how do you feel that this character, um, you know, is there more depth that there needs to be in this, um, in the show Bible? And uh, so she did, you know, a huge revision between season one and season two based on the actor's input, which I think is really cool because... A lot of times there's, and I know there was still tension with some of the actors feeling they didn't get enough input, but it's cool that she wanted to hear what the people who were playing these parts had to say about their characters. So moving along to the next episode on the list we've got, we've got, speaking of problematic things, Friday's Child. 
Yeah, a little bit of a throwback because um, the first time Sue and I ever talked, we were on Grace's show, All Things Trek, and we talked about Friday's Child like a lot. We bonded over it. We've got a lot to talk about with it. Like half the episode was Friday's Child. Oh, it's unfortunate. When a woman tells you not to touch her, you don't touch her. Yeah, that's the main moral to take away from this episode. Don't just go touching pregnant women. It's rude as hell. Don't go touching any women. Or any men. <laughs> or any men. Don't, don't go, go touching, touching people. Just anybody. Don't do it. If they don't want to be touched, don't touch them. There. There's your rule. Um, yeah, and it's interesting, too, because when we had that discussion, we were like, hmm, DC Fontana wrote this. I wonder... You know how much she had to do with it and we talked about it then well turns out that it is indeed it was gene roddenberry who put in the the touching thing yeah interesting yeah so she says about it the only thing i didn't have was that they couldn't touch her gene put that in it was taboo to touch her which of course precipitated the scene later on between her and mccoy where she slugs him and he slaps her right back that was gene's too i freely admit that but i didn't like that script as much after it was changed that scene is so very comfortable to watch when McCoy just straight up slaps a woman who's nine months pregnant. Yeah. I think that this is, you know, we definitely have to spend a whole episode just talking about Friday's Child at some point and what actually ended up on screen. But um, it's a really interesting look. Versus like the intent. Yeah, um, because it wasn't just like that the story, like the story also changed quite a bit and who uh, the character of Eileen is it um, was changed quite a bit from what Fontana envisioned. And um, she, you know, uh, she intended her to be an unlikable character because at the time you didn't get to see unlikable women on TV. And even now, like, there's a lot of pressure to always make sure all your women characters are at least in some way likable, like, even if that's desirable um, or easily, you know, pinned into some box and category. So which is pretty ridiculous um so you know it was actually kind of radical for her at the time to she said in uh these are the voyages my feeling was that not all women are mummies some women do not like their children some women do not want to have their children some women abuse their children and that was a very real fact for me i knew that and i wanted to subtly bring it out not that you can beat up a kid on screen obviously but she um meaning aline was willing to sacrifice the child for her own life she was a selfish woman which, which is such a radical thing to be able to see portrayed on television, just anything differentiating from this idea of womanhood equals motherhood, motherhood equals being above reproach. Um, just the idea that... And nurturing. Yeah, that all that some women just should not have children and some women don't want to have, to have or be around children. Yeah, like, and she says, uh, but Jean wanted the traditional woman has baby, loves baby, automatic, no question about it, will do anything for child. So, um, that's, that's fascinating. I, like, I don't know what I would have thought if I had seen her original version produced, because, you know, at the time, given there were so few women on the show, it could have still come across as possibly a negative view of women but to show this woman who was like super selfish it could have come it could have come across as women are all shrews kind of yeah thing. but it, it's hard to say she said that she wanted that character to not be likable but i think in a very yeah. different way you know it's just it's very interesting to me how how by all accounts gene roddenberry is the one who wanted to put sex into everything <laughs> 
and yet he is also the one who wants this very traditional view of womanhood. Hmm. That's not really that surprising to me. Like it, it is very much a, a sort of a virgin whore dichotomy that you know you can only be one, one or the other. Like this pure figure who is like gives birth to a child and unconditionally loves it, or you can be like over sexualized and and evil. I mean, in uh, a slight digression, but in the uh, uh, notes for Cat's Paw, he talks about how it totally makes sense that Sylvia uh, would be beautiful and unhinged because the two basically go together. So good to know. I mean, it's definitely an example of how the show was ahead of its time, but also a product of its time in terms of how people were talking about women behind the scenes. Um, And it's cool that Fontana tried to challenge that, even though that didn't really end up coming through in this episode. Although you do get to see Julie Newmar just giving it the college try, I think, to make this character unlikable. That's at least what I got from her performance. Well, apparently, um, this is one of the episodes that DC Fontana wanted her pseudonym to be on. Um, She didn't want the screen credit under her name because of all the changes. But Gene Roddenberry persuaded her to keep it on there, so... Again, very telling. Her next episode that we're talking about is one of my favorite episodes of the original series. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. Journey to Babel. Who wants to sum that one up for us? You can do it. So the gist of this episode is that the Enterprise is escorting a bunch of ambassadors to the planet Babel. Or is it Babel? Babel. It goes either way. Babel or Babel to have a big, you know, to do. And there's some culture clash on board, including, but not limited to, the Tellarites and the Andorians butting heads, and Spock's parents being on board. So we get all kinds of drama with that. Yeah, I think this is another one that shows how fascinated DC Fontana was with Spock and his background, and you know um, what that would look like. So this is the first episode when we actually get Amanda Grayson and, and Sarek. Sarek! Now we're Babel, Babel, Sarek, Sarek. So it's it's cool to see them for the first time. It's also really cool that we get such a level of um, establishment with the Vulcan culture in this episode. Is is this this is one of the earlier times we see the Vulcan salute, isn't it? The live long and prosper bit. Yeah, and McCoy has trouble with it, which made me feel better about the fact that I am not very good at it, to be honest. Which is pretty cute. This Spock-Sarek relationship has always been one of my favorites, and it's kind of cool to see that play out and see like where the beginnings of that whole arc is. Um, it's one of my favorite stories for that reason, um, and I really think it gives Leonard Nimoy a lot to do in this episode, and we get to see Mark Leonard be awesome, as always. Definitely. Again, though, I just got to go back to the culture establishing. That's probably my favorite thing of this episode, getting to just have this menagerie of aliens hanging out on the ship and all of them having to interact with each other for good or for bad and just getting this sort of cultural mishmash going on. It's just super fun, and it's one of the highlights of sci-fi to get to see. We also find out that uh, Spock had a pet Salot. And that is one of my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, and that's one of my favorite scenes ever. Is when (laughs) McCoy and Amanda Grayson are talking, and she tells him that Spock had this pet, and he he's he's so excited. He thinks this is like a teddy bear type situation, and then Spock's like, "Yeah, it has huge uh, huge teeth." (laughs) It's really cool. And then we get to see him later on the animated series, don't we? 
Yeah. Um, I, and I also think that this is a, another example of DC Fontana was funny. Oh, yeah, no doubt. A lot of her moments that she writes for these characters are really, really funny. Yeah, and this is considered to be one of the, uh, critically speaking, considered to be one of the best episodes of Star Trek, isn't it? I'd say especially for the original series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, it it really helps with sort of laying the tracks for the future of Star Trek's uh, political intrigue element to it. Yeah, it's a good one. It starts off a lot of different kinds of aspects of Star Trek that I really, really like. So um, this is another one that I think highlights how good DC Fontana was at world building and adding adding layers to the Star Trek universe that we end up seeing later um, and becoming very important to the series as a whole and to the movies. Moving on to our next episode, we have By Any Other Name, which was a teleplay she wrote with Jerome Bixby of Twilight Zone fame. My favorite thing about By Any Other Name and <laughs> is uh, the scene where Scotty is drinking, one of the most famous scenes of the original series. <laughs> and that was actually Fontana's favorite scene from that episode, too. It is a beauty to behold. I, I still, every time I drink whiskey now, I just hear Scotty in my head. Very, very, very old scotch. Whiskey. <laughs> I love it. It makes me laugh every single time. You can totally tell he's having fun with it. Yeah. The It's Green line will live in infamy. But other than that, I don't know if there's really very much about it that we need to talk about. I guess I'll just mention, like, like I think that this episode shows... Um, the kind of uh, comments that Fontana would make, you know, in these memos back and forth with the other writers, because, you know, one of the things she said about this was that Kirk's image was starting to trouble her when you have him succumbing to, quote, nervous needs midway through the story and then walking away from the girl at the end. Um, she says, it makes him seem like a bastard to me and I don't care if he has elevated a shy girl to a woman. That kind of line is a large pile of baloney. Agreed. Yeah, and like you can see her making other comments like that um, on scripts like uh, Who Mourns for Adonai, um, Adonais because um, she objected to the fact that there were all of these episodes, um, including that one and Space Seed, where the women Enterprise crew members are like tempted so easily by kind of like megalomaniac, megalomaniacal men. <laughs> Doesn't speak very well for professionals, does it? Yeah, so like she was really trying to make her voice heard behind the scenes that um, they needed to do a better better job uh, representing women and also how the men on the Enterprise relate to them. As kind of a side note, um, Leslie Thompson, who's played by Julie Cobb, is the only red shirt woman to ever be killed on Star Trek. So that's like that's a right, yeah. fun little note. So moving along then, we have the next episode is The Ultimate Computer. And is there much for us to say about this, do you think? Nope. There's no way we can cover all of DC Fontana's episodes. She has, what, like 10 original series? And that isn't even counting the ones that she just influenced. Is there another one that people want to talk about next? My vote is the way to Eden. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows, I think, at this point, if you've listened to us, that we love the Enterprise incident. Um... It's one of our favorite episodes, but we've also talked about it in depth on other shows, especially our Romulan women episode. So I think we can um, move on to The Way to Eden. Uh, the other one that is in between here is That Which Survives, which um, she actually took her name off of, interestingly. Yeah, and as she did with The Way to Eden, and a lot of that was due to the 
um, the issues behind the scenes in the third season where Gene Roddenberry had left and uh, she and Fred Freiberger really did not get along. And there's a lot of sort of back and forthing between the two of them um, in the pages of like Starlog magazine and in the convention circuit about um, you know, who was responsible for what problems in the third season. And she was just looking to get out of there. Sounds like it, yeah. And they basically gutted her main idea for this episode, which if anybody doesn't remember The Way to Eden, it's the Space Hippies one. Um, it's that, that's infamous. really all you need to know about it. Space Hippies. <laughs> There's a few musical numbers, but mostly Space Hippies. Yeah, and I mean, her big idea for this episode was to have um, one, instead of... In the episode, we get an ex-girlfriend of Chekhov's um, in this story. And instead, she wanted it to be um, Joanna, the daughter of McCoy, and to have a conflict there between McCoy and Kirk over his space hippie daughter, Joanna. And that was basically the heart of the episode she wrote. Um, and they completely changed that. And as soon as they did that, she was really upset with it. It seems like that would have been a lot more relevant in 68, yeah, 69. It would have definitely um, rang a lot better with this kind of recurrent theme in the episode of, oh no, young people, they don't make any sense, if it was, you know, a father and daughter thing. Now it's just kind of like, oh man, hippies are weird. Yeah, and I mean, she's shown that she can write parent, you know, parent-child relationships that are complex, so... I would have been interested to see how she would have written this, and I would have loved to see what kind of badass any daughter of McCoy's would have been. Yeah, and actually, um, McCoy having a daughter was one of the ideas she got when she was going around asking the actors for their feedback on the Bible, and she asked uh, DeForest Kelly, um, you know, what would you think about McCoy having a son? And he said, well, how about actually a daughter? And she really liked that idea, so that was what she was going in with. Um, and, uh, like you said about her showing the ability to write parent-child relationships, she has said, um, in that 2012 interview that nine-tenths of my stories are about love in one way or another, some form, whether it's about men and women, or men and men, or women and women, I don't care as long as it's a love story. And she's talking not just about, obviously, um, sexual or romantic love, but also, uh, love between parents and children or siblings and... Just relationships, really. Is this other quote also from These Are the Voyages? That's what I really love. That she wouldn't write any story that was untrue to the characters. Yeah, I mean, this is the one where she finally was like, peace, I'm out of here. Um, and basically the reason that she did that was basically like, she didn't think that they were writing the characters the way they should. And so her quote that you like so much is, I wouldn't write a story untrue to any of the characters, which is why I threw over something like an $18,000 contract. It became absolutely clear that what they wanted was a Star Trek completely foreign to my knowledge of the characters and my feeling for the characters and what was a bad story. I had my agent pay have them pay me for two outlines and took my name off of what became The Way to Eden and That Which Survives. So I sacrificed about $10,000 for Star Trek. Gutsy. But it sounds like a good thing to quit over. Yeah, and I mean, she's right. Like, the, this whole thing that Fred Freiberger thought that McCoy shouldn't have a daughter because it made him seem too old. And I'm like, um, McCoy is clearly older than Kirk. Yeah, definitely. And, that, and so he, I guess Fred Freiberger was convinced that basically McCoy and Kirk were peers basically same age and so he didn't understand why mccoy would have a grown daughter 
Apparently that was less believable than Chekhov having an ex-girlfriend with an equally ridiculous accent. So, moving along, before we finish up, we had a request to talk about yesteryear, didn't we? If we could dip into the animated series for a bit. Absolutely. I mean, DC Fontana was brought on by Gene Roddenberry to work on the animated series, and she filled the uh, story editor associate producer role. So she was doing, you know, even more than she was doing on TOS because she was, uh, you know, bringing, recruiting writers and getting scripts and working on scripts and um, managed to find time to write what I personally, one of my favorite episodes of the animated series, which is basically Spock's backstory about the time that he had to save his pet sea lat. I've only seen about half of the first season of the animated series, but this episode is so good. It is really a gem. And it, it directly c- ties back into um, Journey to Babel because this is where, you know, that's the episode where we found out about this pet. And then basically she wrote an entire animated series episode around him and his pet and used that relationship as a way to explore how Spock felt as a child growing up both Vulcan and human. And what a way to bring things around, isn't it? That episode made me cry. I'm not even going to lie. Yeah, I I got I felt a few gut punches. It's kind of the universal kid experience of having to deal with the dying or sick pet. And to to put that in Spock's context, it really kind of it makes it hard to not identify with him, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, just a beloved pet and then not feeling like you belong and then being bullied by his peers because of his human heritage. Like, I think it's all pretty relatable and um I think it's really, it's a really good episode. It really adds a lot to the Spock character. And I think it's interesting that it's just this, this episode in, in the animated series that probably most people don't really think of. The animated series gets discounted a lot. Which is, it's such a shame. It is. There are, some of those episodes are rough. I'm not going to say they're not, but there's, there's a lot of good story there. And, um, DC Fontana said in, I think she said it to trekmovie.com in 2007. For whatever reason, Gene Ronberry apparently didn't take the animated series seriously, although we worked very hard to do original Star Trek stories and concepts at all times in the animated series. Well, I mean, you can definitely see that in this episode. Absolutely. And when I was watching it earlier this year, straight through, it was my, my biggest takeaway was that it felt to me that they were taking ideas that didn't get made in the live action series and taking those hour long ideas and forcing them into 30 minutes stories moved fast and there was a lot going on but they were 100 percent star trek stories absolutely and then you know you have little spock inexplicably wearing a speedo in the desert yeah what's up with the speedo and suspenders combo I don't know, but I'm fine with it. I like the animated <laughs> series. I like how goofy it is in a lot of ways, but especially this episode, there's a lot of emotional heart as well. But then, you know, also Spock in, in a Speedo for no reason at all. Because why not? Because Vulcan. Um, I just wanted to say, though, before we get into TNG, um, that um, DC Fontana was doing some other cool non-Star Trek stuff in the period between the animated series and Next Generation. Um, she wrote a whole crapload of westerns. <laughs> um, and Is that the technical term? Yeah, I was trying to a find crap a crap nice load thing. is the she, unit of measurement for westerns. Yes. A whole uh, yes. crap load. She wrote a lot, a lot of westerns. 
Um, but she also got involved with the Writers Guild, um, obviously the union for writers, um, screenwriters, and she joined uh, their women's committee. And she said that the women's committee was just forming because we were starting to get it into our heads that we needed one, that we were way underrepresented in the guild and still are. Um, she said that at that time, women in the guild accounted for only about 10% of the membership and the rest was white males. And because of the guild, there wasn't a pay discrepancy. So the women were getting paid as much as the men. But um, like Sue was saying, at that time, it was very unusual for shows to have writers rooms. They very much it was about submitting a spec, a spec script to a series and getting it picked up. And she said, if it was a toss up between a man and a woman writer, the guy probably would get it. There were not many female executives or show producers or show staff at that time. I can't remember meeting with one woman in the 60s, 70s, or into the 80s. I always met with male producers. So she said that, you know, ultimately the male producers, it still worked out because she was confident and she knew she had a good story and they could see that. But um, she wanted to change sort of the face of um, how things were looking for writers behind the scenes in Hollywood and um, at least make sure that the 10% of the women who were members of the writer, the members of the Writers Guild, had a voice in their own guild. So that's pretty cool. She sounds like such a badass. Can she be our captain? I would not mm. mind. And I mean, it goes to show how how close she she and Jean Roddenberry were, and how much he trusted her. That she wrote Encounter of Farpoint and launched TNG for us. That definitely had to have taken a big level of trust right there to write the pilot, to have them do the pilot for the new series. And we have her to thank for the fact that Deanna Troy only has two breasts. Yes, thank do you. Now? Thank you, DC Fontana, for sparing us from a three-breasted Troy. Oh, thank God for DC Fontana. I love when she's talking about it, too, because she's like, how would that even work? And she just gets kind of, like, feisty about it. Like, how are they even going to make that work? And um, I think she's right. I mean, that would have... I mean, at the time, Total Recall was all the thing, but you only see that character for a little while. Can you imagine going through seven seasons of Troy being three-breasted? I mean, ouch. I want to think that someone would have else would have nixed that along the line, but you never can tell. Either way, thank you. We all appreciate it. I guess most of the story was hers, but um, the biggest thing that Gene Roddenberry wanted is he wanted Q to be in it. And this idea of the, you know, human race going on trial for and Q. Um, So you can kind of see how they're interwoven together, but not always smoothly. Yeah, it does feel like two very separate stories are happening at the same time. Well, in Encounter at Farpoint, you've got Pilots are always kind of sketchy, right? Because you've got the introduction of these characters, so you need to learn enough about them to keep you interested, but then you have to also have enough action or story to keep you interested in in the show as a whole. And I think there was a lot of pressure on them at the start of Next Generation. It's definitely a fine line to walk, especially when you've got all of the popularity of the original Star Trek behind you to, to keep up with. But you know what? With all the changes that Jean Roddenberry has made to her stories over the years, I am most okay with Q because I freaking love yeah. Q. Me too. Um, it was interesting to because um, you know I haven't ever rewatched a lot of these episodes, so I went back to rewatch Encounter at Farpoint, and the first thing I thought was, "Yee, Beardless Riker is so creepy. Make him go away." I hate- 
It's like his chin is naked. I don't know how I made it through a whole season of Star Trek with Beardless Riker not knowing that it was completely wrong and the universe was askew. What about Beardless Riker trying to hit on Beverly with Wesley tagging along? And Wesley, like, throws throws Crusher at him, too, because he's like, my mom just gets nervous around, you know, men. And I'm like, you, Wesley. Did he just, like, meet Riker and go, will you be my new daddy? <laughs> <laughs> and then she's all, no, let me call Jean-Luc. And he's like, what? <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop now. <laughs> I, I really think that we all missed out on having a Wesley Crusher matchmaking spinoff. Oh, my gosh, he would be so bad at it. I know, and everyone would get a complimentary ugly sweater. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a a handful of things that were changed from the pilot to the rest of the series, but one thing that will always remain constant is Wesley Crusher will be wearing a hideous sweater. It's cold in space, okay? Uh, The other thing about the pilot that I thought was interesting, though, is seeing how Yar was written so forcefully. Because they really backed off that pretty quickly. But, like, in this this first episode, she's very much, she's aggressive. She's in your face. What happened to that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like they, and we've talked about Yar before, but I feel like they just didn't, they didn't commit to that. Um, So they backed off it in later episodes. But this first one, she's very much, she like yells at Q and she like runs up and like hits a guy in the face. It's pretty great. So moving along to her next uh, TNG episode. Which she took her name off of. Gee, I wonder why. The, the Naked Now. And didn't even use the same pseudonym. <laughs> it's a completely really different didn't one. want people to know that she did this one. The Naked yeah, I, Embarrassment. I honestly, I find it hard to talk too much about <laughs> about Season 1 TNG and the writing because, um, you know, like DC Fontana, as well as a lot of the other writers like David Gerald, who had been brought in from TOS, um, they basically walked near the end of season one um, because they were having such a hard time working with Gene Roddenberry's lawyer, Leonard Mazelish. And it's it's kind of hard to sort out what exactly their disagreements were on the sets. We don't have something quite as extensive as these are the voyages to say, you know, this is what the first script was and these are who the changes made by various people. So I know that she really objected to stuff in The Naked Now in particular, but I don't know exactly what she objected to. If I was going to wager a guess, I'd probably say something to do with uh, Tasha's character, for one thing. Because look at the big change-up between that pilot, the Tasha that we see in Encounter at Farpoint, and the Tasha we see in The Naked Now. What that character says, though, is is so disturbing, yeah. right? Because she's... Is it in Encounter at Farpoint that... We, we don't quite know her background yet. But she's she's saying to Data that she's always had to be hard and intense and difficult, and she doesn't know what it feels like to be a woman. Yeah, I'm going to call more baloney on that. Barf. No, no, not okay. That really doesn't sound like a DC Fontana line there. Well, in Counter at Farpoint, she talks a little bit about her background in the trial with Q, because she's like... These people saved me and Starfleet is is so great and everything because they saved me from a hellish life. But we don't really get into what that was. So I'm wondering if... Yeah, she hasn't talked about the rape gang as yet, essentially. I'm wondering if they added that later because she doesn't say that in Encounter at Farpoint, which, yay, because every time it's mentioned, I cringe. But um, yeah, so... It's pretty cringeworthy. 
And then, you know, this is exactly what I'm talking about with walking back that kind of aggressive, forceful side of her. They go to the naked now and have her trying on pretty clothes and... I don't know. It's it's not even that that's such a bad thing. It's just it's it's not cohesive. It doesn't doesn't make for a character we understand. I always understand. imagined her as an angry drunk, personally. Yeah, I feel like she would be the kind of drunk that would like punch people. But you know, you want to go? We're gonna go right now, Ten Four Man. I picture her and Worf like deciding to have a glorious battle, wanting to try on pretty clothes and and wear flowy things and be feminine is not the bad thing. The bad thing is, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. The only concept of womanhood there is, is to be flowy and pretty and flowery and and this kind of feminine. That's the problem. Yeah, it's like it makes her, the way that she is on a day-to-day basis, almost like a tragedy because she lacks that femininity and it's like a loss somehow instead of just a different way of being a woman. So our next episode with DC Fontana is Lonely Among Us. I literally watched this episode yesterday and I've already forgotten it. And I'm not lying. Like I looked I looked at our list and I was like, what's that one? And I watched it yesterday. So that's really all we can say about Lonely Among Us, I think, is that it's a very forgettable episode in the first season. And there's really not much to talk about with it. Um, and it's kind of one of those episodes that you forget the second you finished. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that we didn't get to see her doing writing in the later seasons after Leonard Mazelish was gone, because I think that there would have been more to work with. Um, in season one, it just sounds like it was a really bad situation working as a writer on that set. Sounds pretty miserable. After that, we have Too Short a Season, which was a teleplay with Michael McAlean? McAlean? We got one more potato potatoes here. McAlean? I think that the best one possibly after Encounter at Farpoint is uh, her last TNG episode, Heart of Glory, which uh, she ha- came up with the story concept, but along with Maurice Hurley and Herbert Wright. So it's it's hard to really tease apart what her influence was on that particular episode. Um, but I think that it is one of the, the better episodes of the first season and uh, really uh, sort of explores some of Worf's inner conflict and uh, more about Klingon culture. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching it, I was like, I I do feel her influence in this because this is what she was so fascinated with with Spock, was Spock's human side versus his Vulcan side and how that affected him. This story, Heart of Glory, which is um, the episode where they beam over to a ship and they're not sure what's going on on the ship and they find some Klingons there and they bring them back and it turns out that these Klingons have left the Empire because they think that the alliance with Starfleet has made them weak and they want to go and like fight glorious battles. And they kind of use these Klingons as a way to explore Worf's Klingon side and what has he lost by being raised among humans and... You know, that kind of dual nature of Worf, uh, his, it, similar to Spock with, you know, human side versus Klingon. It's it's interesting, and I, I definitely see her influence in that because th- she was so good at writing that for Spock. And not only do you get Worf, you get Yar saving the day, essentially, and you get, you know, development around how Geordi's visor works. Yeah, and I really liked that. I feel like at some point we're we're definitely going to be doing ableism 
And this was an interesting one for me looking at this because one of my favorite scenes in this episode is Jordy has, Jordy and Data have designed this, like, I don't know, this way for the uh, visor to, how would we even say that? Transmit to the bridge. So basically Picard for the first time gets to see what it's like to see through Jordy's visor. And it's really cool, and and oh, I, I I really I like it. I like the way Picard reacts to it, and the way that Patrick Stewart plays it is very like wonderment and like feeling like he's getting to know Jordy in this intimate way. And I, I really like that aspect of it. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, and I mean that the way that she explores sort of Worf's dual identities or or conflicting cultural identities and. You mentioned that it also, she, we see that in how she talks about Spock, but um, not a lot of people know that she also wrote an episode of Deep Space Nine. She wrote the teleplay for the season one episode, Dax. And so that's another one where she's talking about um, a character with kind of dual identities. Um, we aren't going to go into it. And further it. proof that Deep Sea Fontana just can't stop world building. <laughs> yeah, because that has a lot of background on the trill. Um, I mean, we're not going to go too much into it because we just talked about it a fair amount in our last episode on the first season of Deep Space Nine, but thought that it was worth uh, giving her a shout out for her role in that episode. So that is, to use Jarrah's new measurement, a crap ton of information <laughs> we just <laughs> went through. A crap ton of DC Fontana. But at the same time, we have all of this information about her episodes, but we don't have all that much about the details of what was going on behind the scenes. In a lot of the reference books, there's just credits. And even in These Are the Voyages, there's there's some information, but not you know as detailed as fans like us really want to know. When we were breaking this episode, I went to, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to read a biography of DC Fontana. Well... One does not exist. So I was like, guys, let's write one. So let's write one. Yay, why not? Yeah, we would also love to get her on the show to talk more about stuff. Because, yeah, I mean, I feel like we uncovered a lot of information, but it it could have been even deeper, I'm sure. And I'd love to hear more about um, particularly her thoughts on TNG and uh, you know, just being a woman writer in Hollywood in general and uh, particularly in the sci-fi universe. Because she also wrote for Babylon 5, um, so there, there's definitely more to talk about, but I guess we'll probably have to leave it pretty much at this for today. Overall, she's fascinating, I think. I'll just throw in there before we wrap up that, um, y- you know, she was asked in this, uh, interview, the Writers Guild interview about her advice for aspiring writers, because she, at least as of 2012, taught at the American Film Institute. And she said that, Basically, you can, this is the quote, you can listen to all the experts tell you how to do it, but you have to write. You have to put the words on the page. You're the one who needs to tell the story. So that's, think, fairly straightforward and good advice. No kidding. You'll put the link to that interview in the show notes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's over an hour long and definitely worth your time if you want to hear more from her. Alrighty then. We had a great time talking about DC Fontana, but this is just one of many topics being discussed on the Trek FM network recently. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. So Nicholas Meyer hearing that immediately starts getting inspiration. So like, let's do Chernobyl in space. Let's do the wall comes down in space. And it just sort of comes out of, of, of Nicholas Meyer. You know, let's let's comment on, you know, you know, 
what, 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 how would Kirk feel about this and all, all these sorts of issues. Earl Grey. Yeah, really, she's following the Hasbrat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasbrat. It's got to be fresh Hasbrat. None of that replicated stuff. Like, Daniel's, like, at the watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, no, oh, it's the Hasbrat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the orb. Well, apparently, and did you find this interesting, Matthew? Apparently... The Navark reports directly to the prophets. Which is awkward because they don't always show up for meetings, so... Right. Yeah. Plus, you never know what time the meeting is really going to be, right? That is true. It could have been yesterday, and you might have missed it. The Ready Room. Do you think this episode would have been so popular and remain a fan favorite if the Enterprise had been overrun with zebra muscles? <laughs> <laughs> to the journey! Why is he wearing the toga? Now, is he going to a frat party or is he being Julius Caesar? Either way, it's weird. Don't you don't you know Tristan's fascination with late 20th century university social groups? Warp 5. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the Galaxy class in The Next Generation for the very first time. And you had a, basically a crew and civilian complement of, what, over a thousand people? About two-thirds of that complement were civilians and their families so you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board commentary trek stars one of the things that amazes me about the score for star trek the motion picture is that he he only had 50 percent of the movie available to him when he scored so he he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing missing the 602 club where did he get the cloak from on the <laughs> other planet i really 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 want to know he shows up uh, with the he, cloak he, he he kind of fashioned it out of out of a rudimentary <laughs> lathe uh. <laughs> literary treks it's a small point but i thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because again that's what star trek deep space 9 has really always done for Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the Star Trek universe and show how it's valid. And so I thought that was a really nice... Uh, in it, again, it's a it's a tiny point in the book, but I thought it was pretty powerful, at least for me, who is somebody who is a faith. So. Mm-hmm. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. There's so many things that I've got to do. Yeah, I got to. I got to pilot the Defiant. I, you know, I got to sit in the chair. That was like that was a big deal. Yeah. And Renee would always say, "No, no, you know this isn't real. I mean, you're you're so excited to be in the chair. It's not actually happening." It's exciting. Yeah, it was exciting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. We also wanted to let you know about the Trek FM Patreon. Trek FM is a listener-supported network. You can help us keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.trek slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Every little bit helps keep Women at Warp and other Trek FM podcasts up and running. So once you're done with the show, again, please consider hopping over to patreon.com slash trekfm. 
I'm Grace, and you can find me on Twitter at at BonecrusherJank. I'm Jara, and you can find me at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. I'm Sue, and you can find more from me at anomalypodcast.com. And I'm Andy. The easiest way to find me is at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my first time through Star Trek.